Would you pray with me? Holy God, your judgments are true and good. You are perfect in all of your ways. You alone are worthy to be praised and worshipped as our God. Father, we cry out to you and lament this morning for the sins of our nation. We cry out that our hearts might not be hardened like those of Pharaoh and all of the nations we've been studying in Revelation that have taken on the mark of the beast. Father, our country is obsessed with violence. The things we watch, the laws we celebrate, the lives we lead often don't reflect the heart of Jesus who called us to turn the other cheek, to pray for our enemies, and to bless those who curse us. We are saddened by the more than 211 mass shootings that have taken place in our country this year. We are saddened that more than 1,100 precious souls, people created in your image, have either been killed or seriously injured in those shootings, and that thousands of others, who though they may not have suffered physical injury, are suffering mentally and emotionally. Father, we especially lament the fact that some of these acts of violence and hate carry an explicitly racist purpose and plan. We pray for the families and the victims in Buffalo. We pray for the surviving members of Irvine Taiwanese Presbyterian Church. God, you know and we know that your plan from eternity past has been and continues to be to unite people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under your banner. Help us to be examples in our community of dignifying the differences that we all have and treating those who are different from us with the selfless love that Jesus modeled for us. Father, may we not be deceived by the beast. Our hope does not lie in our constitution, does not lie in our government, it does not lie in our neighbor or in the alleged goodness of humanity. It does not lie within ourselves. Father, our only hope is in you. Open our hearts and our minds to the lies of the enemy that we may expose them with the truth of your gospel. Father, we pray especially for the church in Salem this morning. May our city be renewed and regenerated by your Holy Spirit and by the gospel being preached this morning at Salem Heights, by the gospel being preached at First Baptist, and by the gospel being preached at churches all over the city. And Father, may, may we be those servants that are ready for your return that we may be approved by you. May we walk in the light as you are in the light. May our good works shine before men that they may give glory to you. And may you guide us into the truth as Hans preaches your gospel this morning. And may we have humility to receive it. Come what may, Father, you are good and worthy of our praise. In the name of the Prince of Peace, we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Tyler. You guys can have a seat. Grab your Bibles, and if you have them, your notebooks and pens, and you can open up to Revelation 16, second portion of Revelation 16. I'm so thankful to be part of a church that loves to dig into the Word of God at a deep level, and so this morning will be no different than that. There's a lot to cover in the end of this chapter. Well, in 539 BC, the Persian ruler known as Cyrus the Great was making his mark on the world. He had already grown the Median Persian Empire to a formidable state. But it was in this particular year of 539 that he especially exerted his influence on world history by conquering the previous powerhouse known as Babylon. Now, Babylon itself was a kind of wonder of the world. This is an artist's rendering of what that city looked like. Part of the defense of the city was found in the three rings of walls, with the outer wall 40 feet high and so thick that they would host chariot races on top of it. The stores for food and water in the city, the water coming from the Euphrates, were within the walls, and it would allow the people to hold out against oncoming enemies for a seemingly indefinite period of time. It was, in the minds of the people, unconquerable. It was the Titanic of the day, if you get my drift. And so as Cyrus made his way toward the city and easily crushed the Babylonian forces waiting for him outside the walls, what army was left retreated and locked themselves in the city thinking that they were safe. And yet, the Medes came up with a strategy that the arrogant Babylonians did not expect. 
Cyrus ordered his men to begin digging tributaries to drain the Euphrates upstream, and the river began to be drained of its power and lowered. You can imagine the manpower that was required to do this. Now, all the Babylonians had to do was close the gates and openings that were next to the Euphrates River, but their lack of vigilance led to an outcome where the Persian army lowered the water and literally walked under the walls into the city, under those walls that were meant to keep them out. The people inside the city were so shocked that they gave up without a fight. The formidable Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world, had been conquered, all because of pride and a lack of vigilance that originated from a self-promoted deception that they were too strong to be conquered. Now, in our text today, John will mention Babylon as an hors d'oeuvre to the entree that we will look at in Revelation 17, dealing with Babylon's judgment. Not only was it judged in that day, in reality, it will be judged in a symbolic manner at the end of days. And so it's fitting that we use this historic living parable to introduce our text this morning. Similar to the Babylonian self-deception, our text also has within it the repeated picture of demonic deception that we've already seen many times in Revelation. It also has the call to be vigilant so that we do not fall for that deception. But remember, the point of emphasizing the judgment to come for those who are truly in Christ is recognition also that the suffering we know on this earth in warfare against a demonic enemy and the effects of sin, it has a definite end date. And so when we discuss the judgment in Revelation, it should bring us both forward in the fear of God, but also in the encouragement of what is to come. So this morning, we're finishing the bold judgments as we look at the sixth and seventh bowls. And with these, John already told us in verse one of this chapter that with these seven plagues, these seven bowls, these are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. You can see that at the end of verse one there in 16. Now, with the bowls, we have the last rotation of the sevens, meaning we are seeing the recapitulation of God's perfect providential plan coming to a close. You can see it up on the screen there. If you want to, you can jot this down. This is a summary breakdown of the structure of Revelation. You have the introduction of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 were the messages to the seven churches. Chapters 4 through 7, the judgments of the seven seals. Chapters 8 through 11, the recapitulated judgment of the seals in the form of trumpets. And then it was again recapitulated in 12 through 14 in the seven visions. And now we've seen in 15 through 16, the seven bowls. And what we'll finish off in the coming months is the great judgment and the great consummation as John breaks down into further detail and unpacks these judgments. But all those sevens uh, are a recapitulation, a review, a, uh, a, a look at the same image from different angles. And this is very important to understand the book of Revelation. So we can look back at these sevens and now see in clarity that we have been looking at the same time period, the church age in that recapitulated fashion. Always moving forward with more urgency and detail in a progressive way, and we will see that again today, and it is purposefully repetitive in this movement. And so what we're going to see, just as we saw at the end of the seven seals, the end of the seven trumpets, the end of the seven visions, we are going to see at the end of the seven bowls God's completed wrath upon the hard-hearted nations. That's the title for today's sermon, God's Completed Wrath Upon the Hard-Hearted Nations. And we will get one more glimpse of this, but in a more detailed manner in chapter 19. Now, we've already seen the five bowls of the wrath poured out in the first portion of chapter 16, using the imagery from the great and ultimate exodus of God's people that we looked at. And these bowls will follow in that track as well. So let's jump right in, praying that God's Spirit will illuminate the text in our minds and hearts as we read from Revelation, beginning in chapter 16, verse 12. Chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. 
And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. John envisions the sixth angel pouring out the sixth bowl, and we see the plague of deception that leads the nations to war against their creator. That deception in and of itself is a plague, and it leads the nations to war against their creator. We see this in verses 12 through 14 and again in 16, with a parenthetical statement breaking in, in verse 15. Now, this bowl that is being tipped out in judgment seems an odd new image, what with the demonic trinity and frogs coming out of their mouths like some perverse cuckoo clock. But if we remi- remember that we are in apocalyptic literature and that these visions are cyclical and repetitive, we can begin to understand it based on Old Testament uh, imagery and imagery provided already in Revelation. You see, the problem with viewing any of Revelation literally is that you have to be sporadic in how you interpret. So you either have to read it symbolically all the way through or literally all the way through. And friends, we can see right away that to think about dragon having a frog come out of its mouth, that's symbolic. So we're to read this symbolically, not literally. Now, the first thing we can count on is that the Exodus imagery continues here. Remember that the fifth plague was like the Egyptian plague of darkness that came over the land. And like the Egyptians, the rebellious earth dwellers in Revelation are pictured hardening their hearts with a refusal to repent. Their hearts become so bitter towards God's sovereign influence that it leads into this assault on God's people in the sixth plague. And that will then summarily be put down in the seventh plague we'll see in a moment. But let's unpack this sixth plague a bit. The first piece we see is Exodus imagery that is used in the drying up of this large river of water, the Euphrates. You see that right there in verse 12. He poured out the bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Now, this is not new imagery, especially in the Exodus line of thought. For when the Lord dried up the Red Sea, the outcome was deliverance for his people and victorious justice over his enemies. When the Lord dried up the Jordan River in the book of Joshua, the imagery was the same, and it meant deliverance for his people in victory over the unrepentant enemies of God. When you see water dried up, you're supposed to pay attention. Now, this imagery of the Euphrates is intermingled with symbolism of the advancing hordes of kings from the east. It is only in the drying up that the kings of the east advance. But before we artificially force this text to be speaking about the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans, or some other geopolitical enemy of the United States, let's recognize that this text tells us who these kings of the East are meant to symbolize. Look there in verse 14, it tells us, in fact, that these are the kings, not just of the East, but the kings of the whole world. The kings of the East is meant as a symbolic notion, and so it must symbolize something in particular. We will see today and into chapters 17 and 18 that God is going to be showing John a vision of bringing judgment upon the symbolic empire of Babylon. We're going to get into that in detail next week. In real life history, God did this back when Cyrus the Mede came and conquered Babylon, as we talked about in the introduction. And remember why he did that, if you think in biblical history. Why did God use Cyrus the Great to conquer the Babylonians? He brought the Medes to conquer them so that Cyrus would release the Israelite exiles to go back and rebuild the destroyed temple of Yahweh. Now, folks, think about this. This imagery is to take a people that were in exile, free them from that exile, send them back to their promised land so they can build a temple and worship God. This is the imagery that will play out in the rest of Revelation in a spiritual fashion. Those exiled in the kingdom of darkness will be freed by the judgment of God to go into the abode of God, the promised land, to build the temple of God, the church, so that we can worship God in all eternity. Amen? 
That's the imagery that's being used here. That's why Cyrus the Great, that's why uh, Babylon, these images are used, is to speak of the truth that they symbolize. And so John uses this theme to discuss all these things, but let's stay focused here on our text today. To the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, who were the Medes and the Persians? Jacob, would you mind going to the next slide? I think my remote here broke again. Gotta love technology. To the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, the Medes and the Persians were the kings of which direction? The east. The kings of the east. God was going to use the kings of the east in that day, in 539, to destroy Babylon and save his people stuck in exile to an oppressive kingdom. And this is beautiful imagery because Cyrus and the Medes are used as a preview of what God would eventually do for his covenant people when he brings us complete redemption. If you want to see this for yourself, you can write down Isaiah 41 through 47 for you to study and read later this week. But let's look at one small portion of that section so you can see the intertwining imagery that goes with our text today. Let's go ahead and go to Isaiah 44, 24 through 28 on the screen. It says this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, meaning the waters, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now friends, this was written before Cyrus was ever even born, before he went to conquer Babylon and before he dried up the rivers in order to conquer that city. The drying up of the Euphrates that we noted in our introduction was foretold. It was foretold here in Isaiah 44. And elsewhere, throughout Scripture, Cyrus, this king referred to as the king of the east, would walk across dry ground for the purpose of destroying Babylon so that God could build up the temple for his true people. Friends, this imagery is what's happening in Revelation 16. Hopefully, you're starting to see the parallels with our text. Rather than foretelling actual, literal, specific events that will occur in the future, John is using what we can term as geographic symbolism where he is using geographic landmarks to symbolize spiritual truth. He will do this with Babylon in 17 and 18, and he's going to do this a little bit later with Armageddon. Now remember in 914, there was a demonically backed army released from the Euphrates that would war against God's people. The same imagery is happening here. The Euphrates is a symbol for the staging area of the assembly of the unrepentant against God and his people. It's a staging area for the assembly of the unrepentant against God and his people. Now, just before final judgment, what this is telling us is that the world, backed by demonic mandate and power, will desire to wage war on God's true church in a way that has not been seen in all of history. And they, like Babylon before and Cyrus the Mede after them, will think they are marching into an easily won victory for their path to victory has been made clear and paved for them. But in reality, they will be walking into their own destruction. And from this destruction, God will judge the kingdom of darkness and set free his people that are in exile. And this imagery continues in verses 12 and 14. Take a look at verse 13 there. The kings of the east are coming and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of false prophets three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now, we can find the background to this plague in Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Would you turn there with me? Exodus 8. 1 through 15. Exodus 8, 1 through 15. 
It says there, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, uh, I will plague all your country with frogs. There it is. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and into your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with the staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians... Uh, did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Real big help there, guys. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And notice what Pharaoh says. If, if you're Pharaoh, what are you going to say? Please, now! No, he says, uh, Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Gross. That was my word, not in Scripture. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now let's observe some characteristics about these frogs really quickly and see how they connect to our passage back in Revelation. The first thing we see is that the frogs are pervasive. They're everywhere. You can't get away from them. Much like the deceit that's coming out of the mouths of the dragon and the beast. And it seems like the only solution that the magicians can do is to make it worse, as, uh, as if God is using their own black magic against them. Then notice Pharaoh's complacency and odd acceptance of it. Rather than cry out now and intercede for us now, he instead sits with it comfortably and says, intercede for us tomorrow out of his own pride. We also see that if there's, there's not an active, purposeful removal of the froggy corpses, then the remainder just rots and continues to oppress. It also does not seem to soften Pharaoh. It only hardens him more. And most importantly, notice what the entire purpose of this is and all the other plagues is. It's God's ultimate primacy. That you may know that there is no one like the Lord, Yahweh, our God. Well, back in Revelation 16, in our text for today, John intends for this imagery to be pulled forward and inform our understanding of our text. You see, Satan, as we've seen over and over again in Revelation, is the father of lies. In fact, in Revelation 13, 13 through 15, we see this. We're reminded of his deception, and the deception is how he rules over the nations. It said that the beast performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs uh, that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. One of the problems with bad interpretation of Revelation is that you've got churches all over the country waiting to see a pillar of fire come from heaven, and then they will worry about the deception. Unfortunately, the symbolism of Revelation is saying that deception is present now. This is happening now. You don't have to wait for it. Like the frogs, deception is everywhere. The entire land stinks with it. And it's only in the sovereign work of God in bringing the gospel to bear that we're broken free of that deception. Like the frogs, the deception is pervasive. We saw this in Revelation 2 and 3 as John warned the seven churches of the deceptive tares in their midst who proclaimed to be followers of Christ, but in practice were merely peddlers of anti-biblical ideas and deception. And the, the source of that deception is out of the mouths of this counterfeit trinity of the beast, the false messiah, and the false spirit that we saw in Revelation 13. They can't create truth. They can't fix the problem. Like the magicians and their frogs, they can only duplicate the deception and add more deception upon deception. And just as that led to more destruction for Egypt, God is using in our day this deception that pervades the world to draw those who are deceiving into the fullness of their sin so that he can bring conclusive judgment upon them. The rest of the New Testament also bears witness to God's use of Satan's deception against him and those that follow him. 
John warns about the pervasiveness of this deception in the church in the first century, let alone in our day. When he says in 1 John, you can see it up on the screen, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Friends, this was in the first century, let alone 2022. We've seen this deception throughout the church age, and it's no different in our day as false churches and false pastors evoke the Lord's name to back ungodly anti-gospel propaganda that has historically supported evils like racism, murder of the unborn, destruction of the family, perversion of God's perfect order of gender and sexuality. We see perversions like the prosperity gospel, perversions like the apathetic gospel that requires you to do nothing. And churches and pastors that parrot this kind of propaganda are simply storing up wrath for themselves and those that listen to them. Like Pharaoh, the world bemoans the effects of Satan's reign, but sits comfortably in it for another day. The world says, gosh, I, I wish we had peace, but then we ourselves, the world, we bring violence against one another. Like Pharaoh, the world hardens its heart against God's truth. Even the world's best attempts at fighting it simply add to it, and the stink remains. And all of this is storing up that wrath. For the unrepentant, so that on the day of judgment, God's glory as the righteous judge and benevolent savior of his people will be seen by all the cosmos. Well, John then says that the world, in acceptance of Satan's deception, will assemble themselves in unrepentant anger at God and at his people. God is bringing this deception to bear so that the very uh, conquering and destruction that they deserve is coming upon them. That's what we've seen thus far. But then it says, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And where, symbolically, does this group of unrepentant assemble? They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, we first saw this in chapter 6, this idea of the unrepentant assembling together. In the sixth seal, we saw the kings of the world assemble themselves together in a common cry that they would rather be crushed by the rocks than repent to God as his judgment comes. And here we see the same image recapitulated as the unrepentant nations gather against God and his people. Now, friends, John is again using this geographic symbolism as he notes that the place where they assemble in symbolic war formation against God and his people is known in Hebrew as Armageddon. But I'm actually mispronouncing it. It's actually Har-Mageddon. Now this has become popularly known, Armageddon, as the name for a battlefield and symbolic war. And so most Bible translations have it, just as the ESV does, starting with an A, Armageddon. But the NASB actually does the best job of correctly transliterating the name as Har-Mageddon. In Hebrew, if you go to the next slide, there it is, perfect. In Hebrew, Har means mount or mountain. That little apostrophe at the beginning of the Greek there, it's a H sound. Ha, Har-Mageddon. Har means mountain or mount. The place called the Mount of Mageddon. Now, most scholars and commentators agree that the Megiddon is, is referencing a valley in Israel known as Megiddo. Now, this becomes problematic because, as I said, Megiddo is actually a valley. Go ahead and go back, back one. I'll get there. Thank you, Jacob. Megiddo is actually a valley, not a mountain. There is no such name in all the New Testament nor Old Testament of the Mount of Megiddo. There is no mountain in Megiddo. I've stood in Megiddo. There is no mountain. The closest is what's called Mount Carmel, where Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth had their epic battle for good and evil, which I think is also slightly being brought in symbolically here. But friends, because there is no Mount Megiddo, we must realize that John is not speaking literally. There will be no giant battle that resembles a Marvel movie in the valley of Megiddo. This is symbolic. Now, the very first thing we can think of in the strain of the counterfeit trinity and their counterfeit community that we have looked at previously is that this is talking about a counterfeit assembly. For this mount of warfare, Mount Megiddo is used in contrast to the mountain of God's kingdom and people that we will see later in Revelation. 
John is perhaps painting Har-Mageddon as a mount not of an assembly of God's people, but as a contrasting assembly of unrepentant idolaters who are submitted to the counterfeit deceptive trinity. But then also, Megiddo is known throughout historian circles as the ultimate symbol of warfare. One archaeologist I found notes that 34 historically important battles have been fought in the valley of Megiddo. Go ahead and go to that next slide. In the ancient Near East, there is a well-worn highway for trade and the movement of troops that connected Egypt and Africa with Mesopotamia, where Babylon and Assyria are, as well as Europe. Uh, This is called the King's Highway. And so when the powerhouses in these lands wanted to fight one another, they would both go along this route and they'd meet in the middle and stop off just a little northwest from Jerusalem, about two days' walk, in this valley known as Jezreel, in a specific place called Megiddo. Now there are battles noted throughout history and even major battles noted in the Bible that happen in this place. The Old Testament imagery that is most likely being used here and will again be used later uh, in, in later chapters is actually looking back at an Old Testament prophecy from Ezekiel 38. There, Ezekiel foresees a final battle to end all wars in which the evil enemies of God's people, named with an odd name of Gog and Magog, come up against God's people. Now, we're going to cover this in much greater detail, so if you feel lost, don't worry, we'll get there in uh, later sermons. Uh, But in Revelation 20, we're going to cover this in detail, but let me give you just a quick glimpse. Let's go to Ezekiel 38, verses 8 and 9. It was a part of what was read earlier. It says there, foretelling a battle against God's people in the end of days, it says, after many days you will be mustered. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many people with you. Now notice the similar theme here. These evil nations encroaching upon God's people, mustered in their own deception to come against God and his people so that they might be destroyed and God might receive the glory. There's imagery that's used in Ezekiel, as we'll look at, that there's almost as if a hook goes in the nose and drags them into this battle against what might be their own will, but in fact is just them falling for deception. And John uses this imagery to say that there will come a time in the future where the unrepentant nations will so assemble in hatred of God, they will so amass collectively, that they will assemble in hatred of God and his people, and it will seem as though they are amassing for war. But friends, this is not a literal battle line as you would see in the Civil War. This is the hearts of all the unrepentant people the world over amassing for battle against a holy God. Friends, I want to submit to you that if you keep watching the news to see when two large armies fill the valley of Megiddo in Israel, you are missing the point of John's vision. When Pat Robertson comes on TV and says, oh, Russia and Ukraine are fighting, just wait. Russia will go down into Israel and then the Valley of Armageddon will happen. He's not paying attention nor reading the Bible correctly. The point of this is something far more important. It's a spiritual understanding of warfare against God. What he is seeing here, what John is showing, is the decisive cosmic battle between God and the enemies of God that is to come prior directly prior to his final judgment. And God will let this counterfeit trinity, led by, the counterfeit, uh, led by Satan, the counterfeit God, draw all the unrepentant people of the world together in angry warfare against God, not physically, but spiritually, so that God can bring final judgment upon them in the judgment symbolized by the final bowl. We've been talking about this idea of sin filling up the bowls until they pour out. This is the point at which all of the hatred towards God and his law and his people will amass to the point where it pours out and God brings judgment. That is the picture here in this sixth bowl. And so the question we have to ask is, how close are we to this day? Yes, we cannot know the day nor the hour, but how close are we? Let me ask, are the unrepentant masses coming against God and his people once and for all? 
Do you see in the streets unrepentant people amassing in anger against God's law? I didn't expect an answer, but you're correct. Let's discern the violent attack on God's created order, the attack on God's divinely ordained institutions of marriage, family, societal government, and the church, and the authority that flows from them, and the societal embrace of evil, not just the permission to commit evil, but the celebration of it as a new gauge of moral righteousness. In other words, if you're not for the evil, then you are immoral. All of these, dear brothers and sisters, point to the fact that we have crossed the proverbial threshold into a time when evil is advancing unchecked at an exponential rate. If the Lord continues in gracious patience and we are not ready to stand firm under the seemingly crushing forces of secularism and hatred of God's law that is permeating the world, we will be crushed. And we will give in to the deception. Friends, as you're, uh, if you're a parent in this room, you're noticing as your children are growing up, there is pressure that if they don't accept what the world views, they are hate-filled. We can't give in to that deception. Brothers and sisters, there will come a time, we are not sure when, it could be tomorrow, it could be a decade from now, it could be 200 years from now. But the Bible is clear that there will come a time where true biblical Christianity is no longer welcome anywhere. And that is when the world will rebelliously state, we've had enough of you. Where the world will say to the Christians, does this sound familiar? You are the ones standing in the way of progress. It is then that the world's sin will be complete and the final cup of God's wrath will be ready to tip over in judgment. So what should we do? What should we do, Jesus? Well, he lovingly has a parenthesis where he tells us what to do. Jesus interjects here in verse 15, and he says next, he gives us a warning to stay awake and be ready to fight. If you have a red-letter Bible, you notice, you'll notice that verse 15 is most likely read, indicating that Jesus is speaking here directly to the churches of chapters 2 and 3, and therefore to all Christians in all places across the church age. Take a look at what he says, verse 15. Behold... In other words, pay attention. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, this language should really ring a bell for all of us. It was used in Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3. Let's look at that on the screen. Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3. He said to the church at Sardis, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Sardis was dying because they had works that seemed like they were based in God's justice. They were probably really nice people even. But at their core, they were dying from not understanding and walking in the truth of God's word. But here, in the context of what we've just looked at, he is surely calling out to the church and telling us not to get drawn in by deception that puts us asleep in apathy or ambivalence, or even worse, in deception. Deception that makes us think we are acting in the ways of God, but are in fact deceived by the false gospel we have accepted and the false theology of God that we have developed in our own heads, thinking that it's good theology. For if we fall into these, we are proving out that we never were, in fact, God's people, and we do not follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And the unfortunate piece of this is that judgment, when it comes upon us in an instant, will leave us in God's wrath. Now, this is such an important warning that it's all throughout the New Testament. We heard some of it earlier in our readings. Let's look at Jesus in Matthew 24. It's a long section. You can read the whole section on your own, 36 through 44, but I parsed it up a bit. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. In other words, there's an immediacy. There's a, there's a staying awake because you don't know when it's coming. 
Therefore, he says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, friends, I know some of you have a theology that holds to what's called a secret rapture. There is an unfortunate side effect to that. It means you can play around with sin, and even if the rapture happens, well, at least then you get a second chance to repent. Friends, there is no such thing in the Bible as a secret rapture. I'm sorry to tell you, it does not exist. What this is speaking of is judgment day. It will come upon you without warning, and there will be no second chance. The following chapter tells us that judgment is the context. Chapter 17 in Revelation, not a secret rapture. Excuse me, in Matthew 24, the following chapter, Matthew 25 tells us that judgment is the context, not a secret rapture, which is often attributed to this section. Peter helps us understand this even further, that this kind of language is not for a secret rapture, but the second coming of Christ in judgment. Let's look at 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, guys, if judgment happens tomorrow, will it change the way you live today? Think about it for a second. How many of you would answer yes? What this text What our text in Revelation is telling us is that's how we should live. Because we're waiting for and hastening the day of the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. All of these texts have the same message as our text in Revelation. Jesus is telling the church to wake up from our slumber, wake up from our business as usual mentality and recognize That from the death and crucifixion of Christ through today, and until Christ comes again, we are at war. We must always be ready for battle, dressed in our battle gear, standing firm against the deception that wishes to so easily ensnare us. Uh, There was a picture in a magazine right at the beginning of the war in Afghanistan that had a man standing in a foxhole in boxers that had hearts on them, combat boots, no socks, with a flak jacket on, a helmet, standing at a machine gun, shooting at the enemy. He had been caught unaware. He didn't have his clothes on. Luckily, he grabbed the important things, the helmet and the flak jacket, and praise God the boxers, or else it would be a weird picture. But he was sitting there shooting. And what this is telling us is don't be like that guy. Don't fall into complacency thinking that because you're in the foxhole, you're safe. We must recognize that in the eyes of the unrepentant idolaters of the world, the only barrier to their peace and safety, the peace and safety that was mentioned in some of these verses, is the removal of those who proclaim the objective truth of God's word. And so a time is coming, dear friends, when the remnant of true Christianity will be outnumbered by false churches, false pastors, and false Christians. It's not that Christianity will disappear. It's that the majority of it will become false to the truth of the gospel. These false Christians will have bought into the subjective truth of secular morality. And so Christ is saying, stay awake. Don't fall to the deception. Stay awake. Be ready for battle. Dressed in your battle gear standing firm against the deception that wishes to so easily ensnare us. And so we must stay awake, not just so that we are ready for judgment day, but more so so that we don't get caught up in the current of postmodern secular individualistic relativism where we think we are God and we can decide good and evil apart from God's word. For many self-styled Christians proclaim that they know and follow Christ but they are not covered in his righteousness at all. This is the very state that John was warning the churches in chapters 2 and 3 to watch out for. They're clothed instead by works of righteousness, supposedly, by the fact that they are kind to humanity, by the fact that they can earn the good graces of Jesus. They're not clothed in the true gospel that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, and that only by God's grace, by his work, of justification, through his blood on the cross and the power of his resurrection, only then are we made whole in him. 
And this is why Jesus counsels Sardis and Laodicea to clothe themselves with Christ's righteousness. Jesus tells us a parable that gives us a little bit more on this idea. In Matthew 22, Jesus speaks of a wedding feast. And there the king spots a particular wedding guest without their wedding garment. It says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The picture here is that on judgment day, many will cry out and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these works in your name. We fought the good fight for humanity. We did all the social justice you asked us to do. And he will say, away from me. There will be those that stand up and say, Lord, Lord, we were great patriots. Uh, we backed the Constitution. We said the Pledge of Allegiance every time we could. And he will say, guys, I'm not an American. I have drawn all people from all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. There are many that have different reasons why they think that they are God's people, but they absolutely are not because they're not clothed with the wedding garment that could only be provided by the blood of Christ. Friends, so many self-proclaimed Christians today style themselves in their world-defined moralistic behavior because they're justice warriors fighting on behalf of the oppressed or because they're nationalistic patriots who believe that their political belief and love of country will make them righteous. But all of this will show up on Judgment Day as false. And those folks will realize they have clothed themselves in filthy rags. Only those who have allowed Jesus to clothe them in his righteousness, earned through his substitutionary death on the cross in your place and mine, will have that eternal dress that makes us pure in the blood of Christ. Many try to work for their salvation in a morality not defined by God, but by themselves and by the worldly system. I pray, and I have been praying, that the Lord will convict your heart this morning if that is you. If so, it's time to wake up and repent. Well, we use this phrase, wake up. What does it mean? What does it mean to be awake? Well, quickly, it is to be purposeful in your submission to Christ and his commands. It is to partner with the Holy Spirit in the power that he is giving you. It is to recognize that by his death on the cross, you have been purchased back from the kingdom of darkness and you have been set free by his grace so that you can give yourself entirely in holy servitude to Christ in every part of your life. It is to be purposeful first in your dependence on Christ. It is to acknowledge your innate state is to drift asleep at every moment in sin. And so to be awake is to cry out to God every moment of every day, hold me fast, Lord, because I can't do it without you. It is to immerse yourself whenever possible in his word so that the truth can permeate your heart and mind, not out of a duty to do a devotional, but out of recognition that it is your only support in this life. It is to purpose to prioritize fellowship with his saints on Sundays and throughout the week so that you can exhort and encourage one another every day. It is to recognize just as with the word, we cannot do it without Christ's body. And it is to purpose to proclaim his truth through evangelism and living out God's love and justice to the world as the gospel overflows out of this church. And friends, that starts with first being awake in the obedience of your own life. How can we evangelize if we are disobedient to the Lord we say we serve? Friends, Satan wants you angry at God, and if not angry at God, apathetic in your faith, or deceived in your false faith, that obeys Christ in word only. And if he can do none of these things, he will leave you ambivalent in your response to God's commands. All of these are spiritual sleep that leads to spiritual death. And so Christ comes to us and says, Dear church, stay awake. Can you not stay awake with me one hour? For his judgment will come in an hour you do not expect. And that is what we see finally in the next section, verses 17 through 21 in Revelation. We see the decisive victory over Satan and his false kingdom. Now, I've had to spend so much time breaking down the first portion of our text that I'll need to summarize this section and let the next few chapters bring further clarity as John unpacks this bowl in detail in chapters 17 through 19 and really 20. 
But let's do our best here as we finish off this morning. Please read it with me now again, verses 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Here again, we are now seeing the recapitulated imagery we've seen with the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh vision. We are seeing the final day of the Lord where God judges unrepentant sin and completes the salvific work to redeem his people to eternal life. And the words of verse 1 in chapter 16 are brought to fruition, for with this plague, the wrath of God is finished. We see that the finished work initiated on the cross when Christ first uttered, Te telestai, it is finished. And it's here consummated as the voice from the temple and throne from the Lamb itself says, it is done. Why the difference? Well, a different word is used here than te telestai in the Greek. That word means it is finished. Here, it is done. The Greek is, it has come to be. That's what it is done means. In other words, what was inaugurated in the death, resurrection, and enthronement of Christ's first coming will fully come to fruition at his second coming in judgment. And this powerful imagery is reinforced by the continuing symbols from Exodus. The wrath upon God's enemies is pictured by the use of the plague of hail that you can find in Exodus 9. We've got 22 through 26 up on the screen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down from heaven. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Now notice that it comes only upon the unrepentant enemies of God, Egypt, and not upon his people. What better imagery to use for the final judgment of God? His wrath will only come upon those that are not repentant and clothed in the blood of Christ. But there's also imagery that means the covenant people of God will be assembled to his holy dwelling, as it also employs imagery from that first moment on Mount Sinai, when Israel was first called into covenantal communion with God and received his law, thus becoming his sovereign subjects. Flashes of lightnings, rumblings, and peals of thunder. All of this imagery is meant to call together these ideas of God drawing his people to himself and God bringing wrath upon the unrepentant. And John states that this bowl is to be poured out upon the air. This could be a simple reference to the fact that the plague itself is hail, and so it's coming in the air. But most likely, it's probable that this plague is poured out upon the air because the air is the domain of Satan. Paul refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air elsewhere. And so this is poured out with regards upon the dominion and authority of Satan's throne, just as the uh, fifth bowl was. Because at this point, this point of judgment, only God's throne can now exist. Friends, do you realize that all the other thrones have to be removed so that only God's throne can exist? And the throne of the beast was judged in the fifth plague, and now the throne of Satan himself is brought low as God's sovereignty reigns supreme. We saw this same language elsewhere in Revelation, but John is using it again here, recapitulating it again, and is continuing to use the Old Testament prophecy for the final day of conflict between good and evil that we looked at earlier in Ezekiel 38. Just for the sake of time, you can write down Ezekiel 38, 18 through 23, and read it on your own. For the sake of time, I want you to focus on the very end this battle, this judgment, this scene is for the purpose. At the very end there, it says, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This final judgment is the point at which all of creation will bow under the awesome weight of his glory and holiness. And the enemies of God will be summarily judged and removed to eternal torment. 
Friends, even that which is immovable, the very mountains in our text, it says they will be brought low. This is exaggeratory and symbolic language to speak of the singularly unique event of when judgment occurs. And so God will show his greatness and his holiness and make himself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that Yahweh is supreme. And as we will see in chapters 17 and 18, even when Babylon will be shaken to its foundation and broken in irreparable pieces, we have a preview of this that will lead into chapter 17. We're not going to unpack this very much this morning because I want to save that for next time. But we, what we know this week is that in the fall of Babylon, truly it says, all the nation's cities will fall. We as humanity have built up our systems and built up our cities thinking that we are like Babylon, that they cannot fall, that we are protected. But this worldly system of governmental power, of economic enslavement and false religion, it will come to a complete end so that the kingdom of Christ can reign. But even then, notice, even at this last and final judgment of wickedness, the response of the unrepentant idolaters on earth will be to curse God. It says in verse 21, they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. The word there in the Greek is blasphemeo. They blaspheme their maker, their savior, and their king, evidencing the truth and reality of mankind's sin that deserves wrath. It is in this final judgment, the day of the Lord, that many other Old Testament prophets promised that God would shake the heavens and earth one final time, in which the created order itself would be undone. This will not be just a simple earthquake of the movement of tectonic plates. This is a movement of the entire cosmos, so that God's true kingdom reign can be established forever. And at that point, all will be completed. In the words of one prophet, it's, it, it will be a moment at which it says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Now, while this judgment should build in us a fear of God, it should also bring encouragement to those of us who are in Christ. Remember that judgment is wrath poured out. Yes, absolutely. But for those who are in Christ, that wrath was already poured out on Christ as your substitute. Dear friend, why on earth would you wait for the wrath of God to come upon you when Jesus has taken the wrath for you? Don't wait to look to him as your savior. For that day will come upon you as a thief and you will have no moment to repent. And friends, there are no such things as eternal takebacks. And so now we can look at judgment as more of the removal of that which is against God. We don't have to be those who are unrepentant and that the wrath of God will come against. We can see this judgment through the lens of the graciousness of God and his gracious reign so that what is of God might remain and flourish because of this judgment in light of God's holiness and goodness. This is what the church is to see in this judgment. It's either a call to repentance if you are not repentant or it is encouragement in the fact that this day will come when all will be wiped away and only Christ and his people will remain. The author of Hebrews notes this in Hebrews 12. He says this. Look at it up on the screen there. Ah, it's frozen. Everybody turn to Hebrews 12. There we go. Satanic gremlins. Everybody turn to Hebrews 12, 26, and we'll finish there. There it is. It's up on the screen. Good job. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." Heavy text, amen? amen? Friends, since this event is assured in our future, this event of judgment, 
What kind of people ought we to be? And which kingdom do you want to be a part of? I beg of you to not let this question fly out of your brain the moment you leave these doors, but to meditate on this this week. Since this event is assured in our future, what kind of people ought we to be? And which kingdom do we want to be a part of? The kingdom that will be shaken, undone, and destroyed, or the kingdom that will stand for eternity in the presence of our good creator God? For every day, friends, we are sowing seeds by our actions, by our dependence upon Christ or our lack thereof. We're sowing seeds towards a kingdom that will be shaken or seeds towards a kingdom that will be established. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he or she also reap. So let's begin by heeding the call of Jesus from our text today to wake up to gird ourselves with his righteousness and give thanks to God through our acceptable worship as we praise him and look forward with the ordinance of communion to the feast to come when he comes again in glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Aaron, you can come on up.